I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about. I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives on that topic that will help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that's so divided. There's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today's topic, disengaged and confused. I'm way frustrated. It's been disheartening. It's made me disengaged more probably. Sometimes I get cynical about what's in the news or, you know, where things are headed. I would say that I'm pretty much isolated right now in in my political position. That was Noah in Utah, Sydney in North Carolina, Jeff in California, Alex in Utah, and Troy in Georgia. More than half of Americans say that political parties do such a poor job representing the American people that a third party is needed. And the number of people who feel that way, 62% of Americans to be precise, is the highest it has ever been since Gallup started polling about it 20 years ago. And I am one of those voters, too. We heard from a lot of top-of-mind listeners who are just really feeling frustrated with a system that seems broken. Isn't the whole point of a democracy to represent the voice of the people? How can our two main political parties be leaving so many of us feeling orphaned? Today we're looking at why we're in this mess. There's some surprising history to it. But more importantly, we are exploring what to do about it. Is there anything that could force the Democratic and Republican parties to make room for more of our views? Could a third party ever be a viable alternative? On a personal level, I'm just hoping we get to a place at the end of this conversation where I want to stay engaged. Because more and more these days, and I hate to admit this, my inclination is just to sit the whole thing out. Let's start by hearing a little more from people in the disaffected middle. I'm Troy Clifton. I'm from a little town in South Georgia called Moultrie. I'm a family physician. I've grown up a lifelong conservative and have been a supporter of the Republican Party for most of my life, but have become disenchanted with the direction the party's taken in the last decade or so. This is a familiar theme among the listeners we heard from and among conservatives nationwide. It used to be that Democrats and people who identify as independent were the most likely to say that the two major parties are failing to represent the people. Republicans always seem to be way more satisfied with the system in these Gallup surveys. But starting around 2020, things flipped. Republicans are now even more likely than Democrats to be unhappy with their party options. Donald Trump's presidency shook up the Republican Party in a way that thrilled some, but also left many feeling disoriented. Marooned is the word Troy uses. I was 12 years old when Ronald Reagan was elected president. I felt like he was uh, my ideal for what a political leader should be. Uh, We haven't had a candidate for president since then that I was as pleased with. But uh, if I didn't always agree with the Republican candidate, I at least respected them as individuals. The 2016 election was the first time I did not vote completely Republican straight ticket. Uh, Almost every candidate on that ballot, I wrote in a candidate because I didn't feel like there was anybody on either side of the page that I could support. I mean, have you been tempted to just disengage entirely? I've had to disengage from some individuals who are unable to carry on a civil conversation. It's affected my friendships and relationships with others. There are people that I go to church with now that uh, won't even engage me in, in a civil conversation that'll, that'll go the other way when we're in the ch- at church together. So what had previously been warm and, uh, and rewarding relationships have turned into, uh, they'll be civil in passing, but there's no other conversation there. Have you changed your, vote, your um, political affiliation in your voter registration? I have not. I feel like the right place for me is probably to stay within the party and to be a voice for 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 waking up and coming back to values that we've shared in the past. 
Have you found yourself since then ever voting for a Democrat? Uh, this last presidential election, I voted for President Biden for the, the first time that I've ever voted for a Democrat. I will do everything I can at this point to ensure that the Democrats win until the Republican Party changes. I'm Jeff Smith, and I'm 53 years old. I've lived in California most of my life. Jeff is another Republican feeling abandoned by his party and disoriented by how much it has upended his political identity, even some of his daily habits. I was a big-time Fox News watcher. And um, during 16, um, when I would have much preferred any other candidate other than Trump, I noticed that a lot of those primetime hosts were all in on Trump, and I think had a big reason why he won the Republican primary. And then just gradually over that, over the course of time, I just stopped watching. I probably went from consuming 10 to 15 hours a week to now 15 minutes when I'm exercising in the morning. And that's it. I get the, get the headlines and the highlights, um, and that's it. Could you see yourself ever going back to feeling as engaged as you once were in politics? No, I don't think so, because I think um, regardless of how I feel on the issues, what I realized is that when it comes to character of, of their political candidates, that the Republicans were just as bad as the Democrats. And I didn't used to think that. I used to think that the Republicans held their candidates to a higher standard of character. And I realized that that's not true. Both parties just want to put forward um, who they think will win, who they think has the best chance of winning. And I guess that's politics, right? You want to win. But um, I no longer think that one side of one side is the good guys and one side is the bad guys anymore. Have you ever voted for anyone other other than a Republican? I've written, I, I will say in 2016 for, um, for a president, I wrote in a name for the first time rather than vote for Donald Trump in 2006, 2016. I, I, I wrote in my father's name is actually what I did. But um, in 2020, I did vote for Trump, although very reluctantly and regretted it almost immediately. You know, I still vote. I don't think you can complain if you don't vote. That's why I went and wrote in a name in 2016 rather than just staying home. Um, because I think that I still am naive enough to view voting as a privilege and as, a, as something that we're lucky enough in, in this country to be able to participate in. Thanks to Jeff and Troy for sharing their thoughts. Moving left on the political spectrum now, meet Noah Harmer. I am 26 years old. I live in Davis County, Utah, um, in North Salt Lake. So I, I, for most of my life, I'd, I'd call myself a libertarian, probably. Feeling left out of the two-party system is nothing new for people like Noah. About half of states don't even let you register to vote as a libertarian. And in terms of political positions, libertarians can be all over the map. Very far to the right on some issues, but far to the left on others. Noah Harmer grew up literally sandwiched between the two parties. My mother is, by Utah standards, very liberal. And my dad is, is fantastically conservative. And really, that was formative to how I kind of ended up in a different space than both of them. Because, you know, it, it, you know growing up at the dinner table, this was, uh, you know, a back and forth that uh, my family was really open on, on political discourse. And I was really thankful for that because, you know, it helped me to understand that you know, my parents really love each other and they they have a fantastic relationship, but they they just cannot agree on on how the how how government should work. Noah's own views coalesced around a desire for the government to be small and rarely involved in his life. Less taxes, less regulation, decisions made as locally as possible. And since there is rarely an actual libertarian candidate on the ballot. In, you know, prior election cycles, I've kind of, I would say I leaned voting R, right? Because I felt like 
you know, traditionally they were the party of limited government. And Republicans still like to say that to you. They still like to tell you that they are the party of limited government. But it seems like Republicans love to uh, tell you that they're limited government until they can legislate some, uh, some token of their morality. He's been turned off by political battles over what can be taught in schools about race or gender and what feels to him like a lack of nuance in talking points about abortion. They tell me that they're a limited government and that they're going to tax me less, which is great. Sure, I, I love that. But at the same time, you're going to be in all of my neighbor's business. And likewise, on the Democratic side, that it's not the values are not small government. <laughs> so it's pretty clear that you feel disenfranchised sure. by their positions as well. Is that right? That is totally true. And so what do you do? <laughs> Who do you vote for? Um, I get roasted by many of my friends and family members for this sometimes, but I do, I, I often do just abstain on, on, on some races where I, and this is like, you know, like that, that's a moral philosophical win for me, but it doesn't really do anything to help solve the problem. I appreciate that he was willing to admit that. Let's hear one more voice. My name's Alex. I live in Riverton, Utah. I am a financial advisor. I would say I lean more to uh, the liberal side, more democratic, but I do pride myself on being kind of a moderate. And even being slightly liberal in his conservative suburban community is a recipe for feeling politically out of place. But it's more than that for Alex. Well, I think one of the big concerns is just the fact that we can't seem to find common ground anymore between political parties. It seems as things get more extreme, um, you know, politicians have to try to play to a base that um, maybe isn't interested in finding common ground anymore. But I know that's something I'm very interested in. I think as Americans, we have a lot of things that we can believe in together and we can find a place where we can find common ground to start dialogue. And I just think we're moving farther and farther away from that. So it's the political rhetoric of the two parties, this sense that compromise is weakness and the only way to win is to demolish the enemy and set fire to the rubble that leaves Alex feeling so frustrated. He's inclined to pull back politically and socially. I want to get along with my neighbors, but it is intimidating. I admit, like, if I'm out and I see somebody driving up the road in a big truck with big tires, with a big, big flag that says something very divisive to the point where I feel like I'm not welcome in that community, um, it does, it does, it does play on me. A colleague of mine let me know that in my town there was like a board seat available and, you know, was I interested? And I thought about it. Um, uh, but to be honest, like to be on a board where I am maybe the sole person who's going to offer maybe the opposite point of view of what everybody else is saying, I just don't feel like I have any inclination or desire to do that. Um, so uh, I, I, in talking to you, I'm having sort of a revelation that maybe I do need to, especially if I want on a national level for us to try to find common ground. You know, everybody's trying to, to, to just be a community and, and I, 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 I need to do better there too. Thanks to Alex for sharing that. What could prompt the two parties to be less extreme? Is adding a new party to the mix even realistic? Or maybe those of us feeling left out are just asking too much of the system, and it's working precisely as it was designed. To the extent that the American party system was designed, um, I would have to say no, that it's not. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. If George Washington were here today and I told him that half of Americans right now feel like neither political party does a good job representing our views, he might just shake his head and say, I told you. In George Washington's farewell address, one of the things he warns against is the spirit of partisanship because political parties were seen as divisive, right? This is John Schaff, Professor of Political Science at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Once we divide into parties, we're no longer working together. We're not working in unity. And I often use the example of sports teams. You don't love your favorite sports team because they're the best or the most virtuous or the most talented. You usually love your favorite sports team simply because they're yours, usually from some accident of birth. Uh, it's the local sports team, and so you root for it. 
So you're not really rooting for what's best, you're just rooting for what's yours, for your team. And Washington was concerned that parties would turn into teams and, and it would therefore work against unity. Well, but early on we get, we get political parties. We have one party that founds around uh, Alexander Hamilton. They call themselves the Federalists. You have another party that coheres around the personality of Thomas Jefferson, and they, they go by many names. For now, we'll just call them the Jeffersonians. And that's your first party system. And then that system really lasts until, as we all know, because we've either listened to or, saw, or seen Hamilton, that Alexander Hamilton got shot in 1804 by Aaron Burr. Uh, so if we think our politics are divisive, just imagine the vice president of the United States shooting and killing the head of the other party. That's, that's not good either. Uh, but when Hamilton died, to a certain extent, the Federalist Party died with him. So despite Washington's farewell warning, political parties emerged anyway, because savvy politicians with strong personalities couldn't help rallying people to their team. And when one of those personalities died, America was left with just one party. You really had the Jeffersonians dominating American politics for about 20, 25 years. Then it's really the personality of Andrew Jackson that causes the next split that really forms a permanent party system where you get one party coalescing around Jackson, and that really is the foundation of a modern Democratic party. And then you another party that is the anti-Jackson party. They call themselves the Whigs. And that is occurring in roughly the 1830s. And from that point on, the United States has had a consistent two-party system. Although, of course, in the 1850s, the Republicans replaced the Whig Party as the foremost second party. Wait, so, so the Republican Party was a third party? Yeah. So the Republican Party arises in 1854, 1855, as a strong anti-slavery party, whereas the Whig Party had been split, by 1856 is basically defunct because essentially you get almost all anti-slave people go to the Republican Party. Almost all pro-slavery people go to the Democratic Party. That's a little simplistic, but fair enough. Uh, and the Whig Party just simply goes away. But why, why did the Whig Party go away? What is it about this system that meant that, you know, that multiple parties didn't exist, really only two? Well, the American system has a strong bias against third parties because on the federal level and on most state and local levels too, you, you have to win an election in order to get any representation. So in the United Kingdom, they, in most parliamentary systems, you have what they call proportional representation. Your representation in the legislature, the House of Commons in the United Kingdom, is basically proportional to the amount of vote you get in a popular election. Lots of political parties can exist in a parliamentary system because even if your party gets just 10% of the vote, that means you get 10% of the seats in parliament. And if there are lots of other little parties like yours with a few seats in parliament, you can band together and get stuff done or force the bigger parties to make some concessions in exchange for your support. Whereas in the American system, there's no uh, reward for finishing second. You have to actually win an election. And generally speaking, only one of two parties is going to be competitive to actually win, to come in first place. And so there's a strong electoral incentive to abandon that minor party because the minor parties really have no chance of coming in first. And who wants to waste their vote on a candidate they know won't win? So even though the founders didn't intend for just two parties to dominate American politics, they created a winner-take-all election system that happens to make it really hard for smaller third parties to get a foothold. Political thinkers at the time realized this was happening, but they also didn't necessarily think it would be a problem. Because in their minds... The job of the party is to take people who have superficial differences and convince them that they have enough in common that they should join this coalition and elect Democrats or elect Republicans to office. And that helps breed 
consensus and coalition building and a kind of moderation. It's the avoidance of extremes. So what happened? I mean, it seems like it, it, something broke. Yeah, it, it sure does. Yeah. And so, so what happened? So it, it is an oddity that one of the reasons our politics is so partisan is not because parties are strong, but because parties are so weak. Wait, because parties are so weak? It took me a minute to get my head around this because I am used to blaming the parties themselves for moving to the extremes and making things so divisive in American politics. But Schaff says it's the opposite. What political parties do is they find people with superficial differences who have enough in common to join a coalition to elect people. So political parties force politicians with ambition to channel that ambition through an institution, right, which moderates them. So I don't have to make extremist appeals. I don't have to say what I'm going to do for you. I talk about what this institution, the party, is going to do for you. And that channels my ambition in a more productive, kind of publicly-minded way. Of course, that only works if the ambitious politician actually needs the support of the political party to succeed. That's what Schaff means by a strong political party, one that can make or break a candidate with its nod of approval and its deep pockets, which is not the case for either the Democrats or Republicans today. I'll use an example. I bet in 2016, if you talked to Republican and Democratic leadership, members of Congress, party donors, members of the national committees, they would not have wanted on the Republican side, Donald Trump to be the nominee of the Republican Party, nor Bernie Sanders to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, who, if we recall, had to change his party registration to run for president as a Democrat because he was officially an independent and identifies as a socialist. He's not really a Democrat, but he almost won the Democratic Party's nomination for president. Donald Trump was not really a Republican. He had changed his registration multiple times in his career. He had donated lots of money to big-name Democratic politicians, such as Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And yet he was able to win the Republican nomination for president. And so those are examples of how parties struggle to control who runs under the party label and that's perhaps the major job of a political party is controlling who's a Republican, who's a Democrat, who runs under our party label. And a party that's not able to do that isn't a very strong party. Schaff says that up until the early 1900s, America's two major parties were strong enough to control who got elected. And those politicians tended to be good at building coalitions and making compromises to get legislation passed. But then the economy shifted away from farming and into industrialized work like factories. And you had the Great Depression and two world wars, all of which led to some pretty vocal frustration with the way the Democrats and Republicans were doing things. And so we start to see the rise of advocacy of things like trade unionism, minimum wage laws, uh, child and women's labor laws. These were aggressive policy suggestions. Well, you're working in a system which is slow to change, moderate, deliberate. And they said, we can't get our policy changes because our suggestions, our, our platform is being hampered by these political parties, both on the national level and in the various states, who are so slow, old-fashioned, in some cases corrupt. We need to weaken political parties and make the, the system more responsive, more directly responsive to the people. And so you start to see advocacy for all sorts of electoral and political reforms aimed at making it easier to get policy reform. We get the 17th Amendment, so U.S. senators are elected by the voters rather than chosen by state legislatures. And we get the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. Schaff says one of the biggest blows to the power of political parties was the rise of primary elections. Which don't really take hold for good until the 1960s and 70s. But the idea that uh, candidates should be selected not by party leaderships in the proverbial smoke-filled room, but by 
the voters in an election. And so someone can be sort of, you might say, a free agent, more independent, not really beholden to the party, not really having done anything for the party, not built the party, not paid their dues at all. And if they can capture the imagination of the people, they can get a nomination. And pull the party that the party label that they carry along with them. So so we have candidates now pulling the party in their direction rather yeah. than the party picking a candidate that sort of fits in the in in you know as a consensus candidate. We call this candidate-centered elections. And what that means is that candidates have to sort of make themselves heard above the din. You have to do it all on your own. You don't have a party backing you. You kind of have to do it all yourself. So there's a very strong incentive to be loud, extreme, to favor the spectacular over the moderate. And so there's a strong incentive towards more extremist rhetoric. And Schaff says it's amplified by campaign fundraising limits. Political parties are actually regulated by law. They are limited as to how they can help candidates run for office. So if I'm going to run for U.S. senator from South Dakota, there's very little that my party can do to help me legally. Of course, running for office on the federal level is expensive. And I have to raise almost all that money on my own. And the federal law also puts strong limitations on how much money you and I as individuals can give to candidates. And so candidates have to spend a lot of time raising money because it's expensive. They can get limited help from the party and they can only raise money in relatively small amounts, drip by drip by drip. It's a sad commentary on human nature, but it is true that you raise more money by scaring people than inspiring them. So negative campaigning, negative fundraising works. On top of that, fundraising laws limit how much a party can spend on a candidate, but special interest groups have more freedom. Interest groups can run kind of a a parallel campaign to mine without really any limitation. And interest groups, almost by definition, tend to be more extreme. They tend to be one or two issues. And so all this has the incentive to turn our politics into more extreme. It's more performative, meaning that elected officials are performing rather than governing. And I think this goes a long way to explain why we've got the bitterness and and polarization in 21st century American politics. Schaff thinks one solution would be relaxing campaign finance restrictions so candidates could raise more money from political parties and large individual donors. That might give moderate candidates a better chance at winning elections. But he says we would need to make sure candidates were disclosing where the money's coming from so voters can decide if they're comfortable with those sources. The other thing I, I, I would suggest to people is if you're unhappy, find the political party that is closest to you and get active. Politics is not won by the majority. It's won by the majority who show up. And so that means you got to do legwork. That means there are things like precinct meetings, you know, the county caucus, all right? And you, you got to go to those things and try to shape the party and try to advance people into positions of authority who will be maybe more responsible than the people who are often gaining these roles uh, today in both parties. Schaff has another recommendation that struck a particular chord with me. He says, those of us who claim to be moderate need to consider whether we really speak and act like it. I don't mean what we normally think of as moderation of politics, meaning a politician who, you know, sometimes votes with Democrats and sometimes votes with Republicans. What I mean by moderate is in kind of the classical sense that a moderate is someone who recognizes various legitimate claims and tries to give them their due. And so recognizing that our opponents have some legitimacy to their claims, even when they're wrong. You know, I like to tell my students that if three people agree with something, there's probably a kernel of truth to it. And your job is to find out what that kernel of truth is. Doesn't mean they're right, 
but it means it's probably getting at something that you should consider. And also thinking about rhetoric, you know, how are you going to persuade somebody who you've called a fascist or a Marxist or an extremist? Um, so can we support politicians who avoid that kind of rhetoric? I think these are great virtues that we should, we should try to cultivate in ourselves and reward them in politicians who try to exemplify those. And I think those people actually still do exist, although not to the extent we probably wish they would. Professor Schaff, thank you so much. You've been really generous and really interesting ideas. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Julie. I've really enjoyed it. John Schaff is a professor of political science at Northern State University in South Dakota. Suppose enough of us started speaking and acting more moderately, like Schaff describes, and insisting on that from people running for office. Would that be enough to draw either of the major parties back toward the middle? It's kind of hard to imagine that working when we keep seeing politicians who take moderate positions getting punished by their party leaders in Congress or ousted by primary election challengers who have more extreme views. But if you go back a bit further in history... The parties used to be more diverse and eclectic, and and certain Republicans in Congress on certain issues might have more in common with the Democratic Party. And, And so there was a lot of space for kind of unusual coalitions to form on an issue by issue basis. And increasingly, we don't see much of that. I'm Rob Saldine. I'm a professor at the University of Montana in the political science department. And I'm a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, a a think tank in Washington, D.C. Saldine also co-wrote a book recently about how the Republican Party fractured into factions over Donald Trump's candidacy. The Trump faction won out, and the core of the Republican Party remains centered on the former president. But Robert Saldine also thinks that with the right candidate and enough careful organizing, a moderate faction could pull off the same thing in either party. It's happened before. One semi-recent example uh, that some of our listeners might remember is uh, the Democratic Leadership Council. This was an organization within the Democratic Party that emerged in the 80s. The Democrats had a series of disappointing presidential elections in 1980, 84, 88. A certain segment of the Democratic Party, an ideological segment, said, look, we have a real problem here. And the problem is that we've moved too far to the left. And so what they wanted to do was to create uh, an institution within the party that, in, in a way, it was a party within a party. And so they had a certain set of candidates that were affiliated with them, the most prominent of which was Bill Clinton. In the name of the hardworking Americans who make up our forgotten middle class, I proudly accept your nomination for president of the United States. Who, of course, went on to become president. But in many ways, it was the Democratic Leadership Council that provided the foundation, the base for that. Uh, And was this something that voters were aware of? Like, oh, I'm going to vote for a Democratic Leadership Council candidate instead of a Democratic candidate. Yes, that's the key. It has to, on some level, seep into the system enough to which Bill Clinton could go out and say, and others, right? There were, there were other politicians associated with this group, and they had their think tanks, and they had their magazines, and they had pollsters and ad people and all these folks who, who were linked in with this network directly or indirectly. And enough people knew about it to where they could say, oh, okay, this is a, a DLC Democrat, not a Teddy Kennedy Democrat. And that distinction was meaningful. So a faction that hopes to shift a political party's center of gravity needs to be really organized, have lots of money, and a roster of credible candidates. Several years ago, when Saldine first started writing about this idea, he saw a handful of Republican governors in Democratic states that he thought might form the core of a moderate faction within the Republican Party. But those governors have all lost their seats. I wonder a bit if the if the moment has been lost at this point. And now it really is hard to uh, uh, to see something like this taking shape in, in the near term. However, the DLC project, that was a multi-year thing. This is not something you're going to stand up now and see results in November. What message would you offer to discouraged moderates who feel like they would rather just 
go away. Just stop stop voting, stop caring at this point. Well, there there really is no substitute for in engaging in, in the system. Our system rewards people who show up and invest time and energy into politics. Now, you aren't immediately going to uh, get engaged in your party and change the national platform, but you can, you, you can have an impact at the local level. People do it all the time. These things are more accessible in most cases than people think. Robert Saldine is a political science professor at the University of Montana. <laughs> okay, I am picking up on a theme here. We got to get involved, even if it feels like the party doesn't have a place for us. But I feel a lot like Alex, who was saying earlier that he's nervous to go into a political space and voice any kind of dissent. Those conversations rarely go well in America right now. The Pew Research Center finds that more and more Democrats and Republicans view members of the other party as closed-minded, dishonest, immoral, and unintelligent. What's the point of even trying to talk across our differences when that's where we're coming from? For years, Pastor Fred Gary did it at a weekly breakfast for men in his congregation at the First Presbyterian Church of Watertown, New York. Scrambled eggs, roasted potatoes, some sort of sweet bread, uh, fruit with yogurt, oh, bacon, have to have bacon. He'd get 20 people showing up every week, and they were a diverse bunch politically. I was probably the most liberal of the bunch, but you know, we had folks there that um, really felt Rush Limbaugh speaks the truth. Um, part of the, the breakfast is, you know, um, to, just a tactic. Um, food brings people together, and it also makes them nicer. I, I just very much believe that, you know, one of the great challenges of our culture today is how um, disconnected we are. And you really need to, to sit down with people over a long period of time and, and listen to them to, to go from that, you know, kind of acquaintance to friendship. And that, that to me, that was the real nature of the breakfast. So the point was to build connection across their differences. But they weren't just gathering for eggs and small talk. They were digging in. We had always had a topic that we were working through, and we would spend, gosh, months on a topic. What we would tend to do is talk about it amongst ourselves for a while and realize that, you know, we really didn't, didn't know much, for sure. And then we'd bring in people that, that did, um, uh, and we'd listen so, for instance, we talked about the opioid crisis, and we had the assistant attorney general come in and talk to us. We had counselors who were uh, dealing with addictive behaviors come in and talk to us. We had the chief medical officer for the hospital come in and talk to us, and law enforcement. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of different perspectives out there. and There's a humility that comes to people when they actually take up a difficult issue together and they realize this isn't just go fix it or it's going to, this is the way it has to be. It, it really becomes a very complex path of challenges and, you know, it changes politics from vote somebody in to how do we work together to solve, to, to create something better than what we have. I think that's kind of the persistent goal of, of you know, for me, in terms of ministry and the teachings of Jesus, they all come down to the question of humility and how that's the way in which people live together in, in compassion is you start with humility. And I think a, a church can be a place where you, where you can see that and maybe see, you know, a little beyond yourself. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be you change your perspective on an issue, but maybe you change the way in which you pursue it or you think about it or you you express it. In 2019, the Atlantic commissioned a study that identified Watertown, New York as the most politically tolerant community in the entire country. Pastor Gary's weekly breakfast meetings were not the only reason for that distinction. They sure didn't hurt. Gary has since moved to a congregation in New Jersey where he's, yep, starting up a new breakfast group. Let's get back to the nuts and bolts for a few more minutes. Are we sure that a third party is a no-go? I keep thinking about that Gallup poll that 60% of Americans think the two major parties are doing a poor job representing the people. And I know the winner-take-all system is really built for just two parties, but more than half the country wants another option right now. 
Is it possible that a third party could succeed with the right approach? Third parties typically, they start big, they start at the national level, uh, they don't win that election, and so they disappear. We were doing the opposite. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. If everybody who feels left behind by the two major parties actually voted for a third party, then of course that candidate would win. But that's not going to happen for a couple of reasons. For one, lots of those people who are unhappy with the parties don't actually want a more moderate choice. They want an even more conservative or liberal one. The other problem third parties face is perception. I have a hard time getting myself to vote for someone that's got no chance of winning. It just felt like I was taking a risk that I wasn't willing to take. That's Jeff in California and Sydney in North Carolina, both lifelong Republicans who say they reluctantly voted for Donald Trump in 2020 because voting for a third-party candidate just seemed like a waste. That has been an obstacle. This is Richard Davis, a retired professor of political science at Brigham Young University and author of a book about third parties in American politics. He also co-founded one. As early as uh, 2011, I actually started talking to people about the potential of forming a a statewide third party in Utah that would be centrist. But that effort at that time did not take off. There were Democrats who were interested in participating. They were unhappy with their party. Republicans, less so. uh, So I abandoned the idea. Then comes 2016, and now Republicans were unhappy with their party. That was the opening Davis needed. He and some other disenfranchised moderates formed the United Utah Party in the spring of 2017 and recruited Jim Bennett, son of longtime Utah Republican Senator Bob Bennett, to run in a special congressional election that year. Bennett lost big. The pundits were saying, oh, see, this new party, you know, only got 10 percent of the vote. They're done. But this is where the story takes a turn. Ours was a bottom-up kind of an approach, not a top-down. What tends to happen is you get some kind of a national political figure, a Teddy Roosevelt or a Ross Perot. They want to be president. They form their own party, uh, and they run, and they lose, and the party goes away. We were doing the opposite. There was was no one person who was uh, running for something, leading the party. We, We weren't focused on a presidential race. We were starting at the grassroots level, running people for county commission, for state legislature for the most part, and building an an organization, an infrastructure at, at the local level first. So the next year, the United Utah Party had 24 candidates running in races across the state. And it was the same sort of thing. Oh, you know, you didn't get elect anybody, so you're done. 2020, we ran uh, 25 candidates. 2022, we're running 24 candidates. So uh, the prognosticators say, well, you should be gone by now. But it's because we're taking a different approach. What what would you consider your greatest success to this point? So we've had a couple of candidates who have gotten nearly 40% of the vote in, in their races, a county commission race and a state legislative race. So 40% feels like a, a success to you. Why? To have, you know, 40% of an electorate say, yeah, I'm going to vote for the candidate of this party that I don't really know that much about, uh, hasn't been around that long. You know, that's, um, th- that is, uh, I think, a, a, a big thing. Because w- once they vote for one candidate from the you know, Utah party, you know, they're, oh, I did that. And, you know, the earth did not <laughs> divide. and you know, the sky did not fall. Um, I can do that again. Uh, and that's what we, we we will see happen, is that people repeatedly will be voting for UUP candidates just more, more and more over time. That That's our goal. Now, most of the time, United Utah Party candidates are still getting just 5 or 10% of the vote. Those 40% cases are rare and really only in situations where the candidate is well-known in their community and in a two-way race because one of the other major parties doesn't have a candidate on the ballot at all. That happens a lot in Utah and all around the country, actually, where a district is so overwhelmingly Republican or Democrat that the dominant party runs unopposed. 
In those cases, Davis thinks just giving people another option has value. When you you get a situation where basically uh, one party has given up uh, at the local level, then you're not, you know, you're not choosing the lesser of two evils. You're you're choosing whether you whether you want to have alternatives in the future or whether you want to continue to have one candidate before you, you know, make it look like the Soviet Politburo. And it's not a wasted vote either, says Davis. It's thinking long term here. If I help a party uh, and a candidate I agree with to do better, then that will encourage that person to run again uh, or someone else from that party so that it becomes, so they start off with 10% and the next election they get 20% and then 30%. Suddenly you see the the kind of momentum here uh, that they need in order to win. Is the hope truly that that the United Utah Party becomes a a permanent um, equal player in the political landscape at some point in the future? Or, or, Or would it be of equal success that at some point the United Utah Party can go away because the Republican and Democrat parties have have expanded, maybe. That that more, you know, the people who used to feel like they didn't have a home now feel like they can be more comfortable in one of those other parties instead. I think there are different goals here. One would be giving people more options. And particularly if you have states moving towards like rank choice voting and approval voting, then uh, you're going to see third parties have a better opportunity, particularly a centrist third party, because the candidate from the centrist party is going to be able to attract the votes of both the left and the right as the second choice. But if indeed uh, the presence of third party candidates uh, leads uh, Democrats and Republicans to start to appeal more to the center, then I would feel like, yeah, we've made a contribution to that. That's, you know, that's not the main goal, but uh, I would say that is success. Richard Davis is an emeritus professor of political science at Brigham Young University, a co-founder of the United Utah Party, and author of Beyond Donkeys and Elephants, Minor Political Parties in Contemporary American Politics. Now, for all his optimism in the bottom-up approach to building support for a centrist third party, Davis also admits it's still an experiment. You can only find a handful of third parties on a state level anywhere in the country that have established themselves enough to actually win an election on occasion. And usually that party is even further to the left or right of the Democrats and Republicans. But here's one last idea about how to engage in a political system that doesn't feel like it has a place for you. Set politics aside and focus on the system itself. I spoke with an activist named Evan Marlborough, who spent a lot of time while he was a student at Georgia State University trying to convince his classmates to vote. I would go into American government classes and host a discussion in the class about voting. I heard things like, um, I don't know who to vote for, honestly. I don't know what these elected officials do. I don't believe that the system works for me. I heard so many times that my vote doesn't matter. They don't care. The elections are rigged anyway. Marlborough was a fellow with the Andrew Goodman Foundation, which does voting rights advocacy. And his main focus on campus was voter registration. But I realized that as an organization, we had to push this conversation forward. And that's when I decided to fight for an on-campus precinct at Georgia State University that's fully student-staffed. Because now we're moving more into not just election participation, but actual engagement in the electoral system. So Marlboro convinced Fulton County election officials to let him recruit student poll workers for the first student-run polling location on Georgia State's campus. They spent months getting trained and opened for early voting in the presidential primary election in March 2020, just as COVID hit. We opened our precinct four days before everything shut down. But it wasn't a total loss. When the elections were rescheduled for May and June, so two months later, they needed people who had actually used machines because Georgia shifted their entire election system, like all of their election technology, January of 2020. So what ended up happening, we, the people in my group, my student poll workers, were some of the only poll workers in the metro Atlanta area that were trained and actually processed voters on the new election system. So 
we basically spread out and actually became poll worker leaders because we were able to do these things early and actually had the hands-on training to lean on to. It's a great story. But the really interesting thing was to hear how getting involved in the actual machinery of democracy was an antidote to their apathy. When students see and actually serve as election workers, they really understand how the election system works because they are a cog in it. And it makes them see that, oh, the system isn't this nebulous and crazy thing that we had been told our entire lives, right? Like, for example, I am totally immune to all of, you know, those you know, people on the news that say they were quote-unquote poll workers and saw ballots being burned, ballots being changed, ballots being distributed. I've worked in multiple elections. I've taught poll workers. I've served as a poll worker. I've helped poll workers. I'm an election technician. You can't steal an election. Sorry. It's way too segmented. It's way too complex. There's too many checks and balances. Even if there is a mistake, odds are it'll be captured very easily, I really realized, no, we, we don't, we, there's no way anybody can steal an election in this country. You can influence an election, but you can't steal one. Evan Malborough has since graduated from Georgia State and is working as a fellow at the ACLU of Georgia. It had not occurred to me that I could channel my desire to stay engaged into the mechanics of democracy. I'm unhappy with my choices on the ballot. Okay. Maybe I just work on preserving access to that ballot in my community. And that's Marlboro's bread and butter as a voting rights activist. But he was still quick to point out that the power of a democracy is so much more than voting. I see social change as building a house. And I see voting as a tool. Well, you can't build a house with one tool. You need multiple tools. And I will fight for your right to vote. A hundred percent. But what I recommend to you is find an issue and put yourself deep in the front lines of that issue. It'll give you something to do before and after Election Day to keep pushing communities forward. And that's personally my philosophy for seeing change. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Miller and Kimberly Beck with help from me and James Hoops. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. And if you haven't already, would you take a moment to leave a rating or give us a review on the podcast app where you listen to Top of Mind? That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.